0: This morning we continue with the story of Gideon. You may recall the Lord has prepared for battle. The Lord has prepared for battle. And he's brought judgment upon the people to prepare their hearts. And he's picked a fight with the wicked through Gideon. And the wicked have gathered. Verse 33, Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the wicked have gathered, the fight's been picked, the Lord's prepared for battle, and the spirit of the Lord is on Gideon. Let's stand up and we'll have a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks and praise to you for this time that we have in your word. We ask that you would use it for good, that you would build your kingdom in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, that you have redeemed us, not with corruptible things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of your son. And I just ask and pray, O oh Lord, that we would live as your faithful servants in the earth, doing right by you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. Verse 35 says, So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the fleshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. But that wasn't good enough for Gideon. It says, Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more, with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. So Gideon prepares for battle, But the remaining verses of chapter 6 reveals he was not really ready. He prepares, verse 34, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, then he blew the trumpet and the Amazites gathered behind him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. Right? So Gideon prepares for battle, but the remaining verses of chapter 6 reveals he was not really ready, verses 36-40. And think of this. This is what the Lord has to put up with when it comes to us mere men. A crazy little fleece thing like this. Gideon was from the weakest and least clan, you may recall, but he was the one right for the job. At least he had the guts to thresh wheat in the wine press to resist Midianite oppression, am he At least he had the guts for that. But still, Gideon knew he was not some champion. He knew, as it says in 1 Corinthians, that he was not wise, was not mighty, was not noble. He was unsure the Lord had picked the right man for the job. He even said so earlier in chapter 6. So he does more fleeces. The Lord had already revealed himself earlier in the chapter to Gideon. You may recall verses 20 through 22. It says, The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Amen. God had revealed himself to Gideon, but he still wanted more fleeces. Now the fleeces seem trivial to us, but they were needed, so the Lord goes along with them. And there's a goodness seen in Gideon doing these fleeces. It shows he was dependent on the Lord. Utterly dependent upon him. He needed him. He needed to cry out to him. He needed to see him and his hand. He was not interested in going in his own strength, nor confident in himself. He wanted and needed the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that's a good place for all of us to be broken in heart, utterly dependent on him, knowing we need him to do what needs to be done in the times in which we live. And the fleeces do get the job done. Gideon moves forward, chapter 7, as we move in there. says in verse 1, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, remember, it's a new name. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them, by the hill of Mora, in the valley. So it did cause him to move forward. The location described here in verse 1, where Gideon and the Israelites rallied, means the Midianite horde was about four miles north of them. And then look what happens in verses 2 through 7. It says, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many, too many for me, to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many, Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So Gideon brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. In chapter 8, verse 10, here in Judges, The scripture reveals that there was 135,000 Midianites. So even with the 30,000 that Gideon started out with, they were outnumbered four to one. About four to one. That was too many for God. God says, let the cowardly leave. Those who don't have a heart for the fight, go home. Just let them go. Gets rid of 20-some thousand men. Still have 10,000 left. And God says, no, that's too many too. That's too many too. This process that the Lord's following here is actually found in his law. It's a biblical process found in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And I want you to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 20. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Deuteronomy, the book of the law, chapter 20, verses 1 through 8 says, When you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. That's an important thing to know. Don't fear man. Always head for the hottest part of the battle. And throw yourself against the wicked hordes in service to Christ. Amen? You don't fear them. For the Lord your God is with you. That's why you don't fear them. He's with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel. Today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you, against your enemies, to save you. Again, reiterated, do not fear the enemy. Do not fear wicked men, because he is with you. Massively important to do battle for our Lord in the land. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not declared it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman who has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. Understand, these are all face-saving reasons for cowardly people to leave. Okay? These are all common occurrences, there would be tons of people who would fit in these three categories because they were massively common in the nation of Israel to take place. So this was the opportunity for anyone who was cowardly to leave. (laughs) It was face-saving measures for them. But in case anybody was missed and didn't have enough sense to grab onto one of those and leave because they didn't want to be in the fight, the very next verse says this the officer shall speak further to the people and say what man is there who is fearful and faint hearted It's just going to cover everybody at this time okay in case we missed anyone on these three common things and you were didn't grab onto the opportunity to have that face saving moment to leave we just want to make sure none of you are with us those of you who fear the fight who are concerned about the battle who don't really have it in you? Uh, here's your opportunity. Go. They didn't want any faint-hearted ones with them. And understand, they may be faint-hearted in the sense they are just scaredy cats. Scaredy cats of actual battle and fighting. They're very common. Whether it's an actual physical battle or whether it's engaging wicked men and their ideologies. Many people aren't up to the fight. Their reputations get attacked. They get beat up. Little wicked people make little dopey phone calls in the night. You know, all that kind of stuff. They can't handle that kind of stuff. So They might just be a scaredy cat but it also might be just a hard time in their life. You do understand that. Something odd. Maybe they just lost a loved one or something. Their heart just isn't in it. This is the opportunity for those people to leave, the fainthearted, the fainthearted, or the fearful, the scaredy cats. Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. God's like, just leave. We don't need you. We don't want you around. You will demoralize the troops in the battle. I remember there was a cartoon when I was a kid. I don't even remember what the name of it was. It might have been Gulliver's Travels or something. But there was this guy in the midst of it. You know, his name was Wowsy, Wowsy, Woo-Woo. Everything, anything that happened in the, in, to them, he only saw the bad of it. He only saw we're defeated, we're doomed, we're done, we suck. You know, Wowsy, Wowsy, Woo-Woo. And that's what he would say. That's what he would say. It was, and there's people, they didn't want those people around them. They didn't want those people around them. Verse 2 here, verse 2 of Deuteronomy chapter 20, where it says, So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies, do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. This passage right here was the establishment scriptural passage for the American chaplaincy. That we put Christian ministers as part of our armies here in America from the very beginning. It was something that actually came with the people from England, from the old lands. They understood the importance of honoring God, living wholly before Him in obedience to Him. And so the ministers would follow exactly what these priests did back then and be with the men and minister to them. This is the passage from which America established the chaplaincy in their military. When, past tense, America was a Christian nation, such action was important to the governance and defense of the nation. And you see this throughout history of Western civilization and Christianity, the ministers going before the men, praying, giving a word to them, being there. Now Americans no longer Pay homage to the Lord. Now Americans pay homage to their own sick selves or to the God, small g of secularism, or the God of the question mark. Whoever you want your God to be, but it's any God but the God of the Bible. That's what we see in our military these days. Americans once knew the importance to live in obedience to God, to honor His law and word. And to invoke his beneficence upon our lives and upon our endeavors. Now their hope lies in their humanistic tripe of slogans. Have you noticed that? Something terrible happens, God's righteous judgment, some tragedy. You cannot break the human spirit. Their arrogance. No humility, no repentance, no being broken on the ground before the Holy Lord. No. Arrogance, we will rebuild. As they're standing on the pile, we will rebuild. So they trust in their humanistic slogans and in their own technological prowess and arrogance. And the prophets of old had to deal with this same stuff when we read them time and time again. It's no different in our day. Whatever the technological advancements are, each generation thinks theirs are the greatest and who needs god you know when the titanic came out they said you can't it can't be sunk it went down on the first voyage man becomes arrogant because of his military and technological prowess he's arrogant chaplains nowadays are told to not pray in the name of jesus within our military there's actually been court cases Than went on for years over that very matter. They are told they are not to speak against homosexuality, rather, that they must speak of it as a good. The chaplains who go along are nothing but whore priests for the powers that be, accommodating their filth rather than standing in true fealty to Christ. And what is the character of men who go into the chaplaincy these days? I remember when I was in Bible college, all the men going into the chaplaincy except one told me they were doing so because it was a cushy job with great pay and benefits. That was at a Bible-believing university. It's a cushy job with great pay and benefits. That's why they were going into it. Every one of them told me that except one. Men who are nothing more than prostitutes for the state, who know nothing of the honor and devotion and even bravery of past chaplains. In verses 5 through 8 here in Deuteronomy 20, this passage of Scripture repudiates the messianic nature of the state when it comes to warfare. The state thinks they should be able to compel all to participate in their military enterprises. They would even shoot you (laughs) if you didn't participate in days gone by. Here we see God gives exceptions, showing the state is not the all-encompassing behemoth of people's lives. God says, let them go. They don't want to fight, let them go. God's economy regarding warfare did not call for a massive standing army, nor a draft. Rather, it relied on volunteerism. Men who were convinced of the righteousness of the cause, the rightness of the cause, fought. The state thought it right to exclude or punish deserters or cowards. God says you simply don't want them with you. (laughs) You don't want them with you. They will drag you down. They will demoralize you. They will cause you to fear them. And once you fear man... You're done. You need to recover yourself quickly. And the best way to recover yourself when you have fear strike you, the fear of man strikes you, is to fall on your face before God and cry out to him. That is the number one thing you must do. And recover yourself. The cowardly will demoralize you. The strength was in their trust in God. That was the strength of the Israelites, not the arm of the state. Not because they had 30,000 people, and that worked out good. No, God wants them only to have 300. So here we are in Judges 7, and the Lord has them pare down the numbers, even past the removing of the cowardly, all the way down to a measly 300. 300 against 135,000. 20 years ago, I preached a sermon called Guerrilla Warfare, a theology of guerrilla warfare. And you can hear that sermon on sermonaudio.com. But in that sermon, I asserted that God likes to work through small numbers of men. Remember, that's the title of this sermon. God prefers small bands of men. In that sermon, I asserted that God likes to work through small numbers of men, that he accomplishes his purpose in the earth most always through small numbers of men. And this story here that we're reading was my premier example that God likes to work through small numbers of men, that he accomplishes his purposes in the earth most always through small numbers of men. And my point is, God only wanted a small number of men, and he beat them with a small number of men. We do not have to sit around waiting for large numbers to see God do great things in the earth. You don't. We do not have to win the hearts of the culture before we can act. The pro-life movement has sung that song for 50 years. Well, we got to win the hearts of the culture before we can see this murder outlawed It's garbage. We do not have to wait for a majority. All God needs is a small band of men committed to a holy cause, and he will do great things in the earth. And that's a biblical fact. Listen to me now. God prefers small bands of men. And in case you didn't hear me, God prefers small bands of men. Just read scripture, read the history of mankind. He does. What was God trying to get them to see? That they are utterly dependent on him. That they could not accomplish it through the strength of their own arm. God prefers small bands of men. We should not be bummed out when we see so few involved. God accomplishes most of his great feats in the earth through small numbers of men. It's true. Don't be bummed out. Just because people say, I, I remember one time we had a gathering for the preborn out in the streets, and 400 people showed up to display the photographs of the murder preborn. And somebody came up to me afterwards and was like, This is so depressing seeing so few people out here. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of Christians, and 400, that's it. And I looked at him and I said, We usually have 75. <laughs> it's a matter of perspective <laughs> you, know? it's, it's like, you shouldn't be bummed out look at 1st Samuel chapter 14 verse 6 look what the Lord says in his word 1st Samuel chapter 14 verse 6 it says then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor come Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. It's another great biblical example of where God uses a person to pick a fight. And in this case, he used Jonathan to pick a fight. And what a fight it became. The same thing we saw with Gideon here. But the scripture says nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. He does not need large numbers of men to accomplish his purposes in the earth. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 22, it talks about David, a man after God's own heart. You know how big his whole army was? 400 men. And they were rabble, discontented, 400 measly men. God prefers small numbers of men to accomplish his purposes in the earth. And in the New Testament, the classic example is Christ himself. 12 measly men. And one of them turns out to be a traitor. 12! Not hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands. He didn't try to fill a football stadium like Promise Keepers or other religious organizations do. He has never tried to get 51% of the population on his side so he can accomplish his purposes in the earth. He's never even counted on the most Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices in order to win. God doesn't need a majority of anything. He doesn't need large numbers of men. Again, Scripture reveals he prefers a small band of men. Amen? He prefers a small band of men. Samuel Adams, who was a Christian man, he said it this way, It does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority, keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. You know how many times the founders were beaten down against the British who outnumbered them? All looked lost, and they'd see the hand and providence of God in the midst of their fights. They just kept going. They understood, we don't need 51%. If we have 3 or 5%, we're good. <laughs> because that's all they ever had. 3 <laughs> to 5%. The vast majority of people will always only care about three things their entire life. Number one is me. Number two is myself. And number three is I. That's all they'll ever care about. And they'll be ruled by anyone. They don't care if it's Alfred the Great or Pol Pot. They're good with it. As long as they have their trinkets and their little lives, 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 they'll go along with anything. Just give them bread and circus. Insanity. It is our fleshly thinking and weak, pathetic thinking that makes us believe we need to have the majority or stadiums full of people to get something done. And it's simply not true. It's our fleshly thinking that we need the majority of people to be Christian to see Christ rule in the land. I hear that all the time from Christians. We cannot advocate for God's law until we win 51% of the people to become Christians. What? The law of God was the higher law that all governments of men were accountable to for over 1,500 years in Western civilization. And during that time, I can assure you that the majority were not real Christians. And yet, God's law ruled in the governments of men. And when they went astray from the law of God, there was a standard to which men could call men to repentance and reform. Amen? The truth is, most Christians today hate the law of God. They've thrown it under the bus. They never want anything to do with it, ever. The story of Gideon points to the scriptural fact that God prefers small numbers of men to see his purposes accomplished in the earth. So I say to you, go out and fight. Don't be forlorn and beaten down, because we're so few. And if you don't know, we are. (laughs) We are. We're few. Go out and fight. Be a fighter. So many are sitting around forlorn, waiting for big numbers. Join with that small band of men who want to do right, who want to serve our Lord valiantly in the earth. God prefers small numbers of men, small bands of men. He does. As we continue on here in Judges, let's turn back there. Chapter 7. It says in verses 8 through 11. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and, remained those, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But... If you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. It's so similar to Jonathan that we saw in 1 Samuel 14. Jonathan was just with his, his armor bearer, his shield bearer. That's the only one... Here, Gideon just goes with his servant down. The Lord knew Gideon might be afraid. He's already proven he's given to that. Gideon saw 135,000 men who wanted to kill him sitting in the valley before his eyes. That would be overwhelming. And you're standing there with your 300. He's thinking, so many wicked people and so few bullets. That's what he's thinking. And, brothers and sisters, we can feel overwhelmed by the evil around us, by the minions of wicked men that pervade the land. But the Lord wants us to fight, to serve him faithfully in the earth. We are his soldiers. We minister in his name. We are his ambassadors. We come bringing his great salvation and his holy law to men. Who are these cheap Philistines anyway? They come with their army and their giant, their champion who badmouths our Lord. We see them in our day. And we come with five smooth stones and a sling. That's God's way. I always tell the missionaries, the missionaries of pre I always tell them, I say, Yeah, they're sitting there with their multi-billion dollar media machine. And we have 50 cents in a Xerox copier. (laughs) And that's just how God wants it. He's looking for men who love him, who want to be faithful to him, who want their lives to count in the earth with the days that he's given us. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for. And women, don't you ever hold your men down from fighting. Don't do it. Men, you look well to your homes. You do right by your wives. You do right by your children. And women, don't you ever hold your husbands. I've seen it a thousand times too many. Men who love him, want to serve him, and the woman pulls him down, pulls him down, puts a wet blanket over him, wants him to conform to the effeminacy of Western civilization at this time when it comes to males, it's sad to see. When you have a husband who wants to fight, thank God for that. Rally with him. God bless me with a fighter. For a wife. (laughs) She's a good woman. You look at the women of old. If their men weren't out there fighting, they'd be like, whack! Kicking them in the butt. Whack! Get your butt out there. John of Salisbury talks about it. When one battle was taking place, some of the men were all cowardly, and the wives told their husbands, we'll run out to the enemy and bear our breasts before him if you don't get out there and fight. And they went out and they fought. Good women understand it's in men to fight. Most men have given themselves up to a false fight called sports, so what are they to it now? So pathetic are they now? They play in empty stadiums with little noise machines in the background so you think there's a crowd there. They can't even give it up then? Come on! Meanwhile, your nation's being burnt to the ground. How can that be? How can that be? God wants to strengthen Gideon's heart, so he offers to do that by taking him into the heart of the beast so he could hear something that would do just that strengthen him for the fight. Look at verses 12 through 14. Now, the Midianites and the Malachites, all the people of these, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand of the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Now this is a bad sign to these people at this time. That means defeat. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So Gideon goes down and he hears this talk amongst the troops. God's already fattening them up for the kill. Some guy had a dream, and (laughs) they're all given to this dream. It's like they're talking about this dream. And their tent collapses. That's a sign of defeat. Sign of defeat. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped. You can't help but weep when you read that. You you can't. He worshipped. He worshipped. He sees the goodness of God and the greatness of the moment. So much so that with a measly 300 men, he's willing to move forward with this fight against 135,000. Worship is massively important. When the Israelites of old would go out, worship was involved before the battle. Worship was involved as they went into battle. Read the scriptures. They worshipped. What I see in America today, here's what I see. I see people getting used to the new state of things. And so there's been a little loosening up, even amongst the people themselves who are like weirdos, you know, thinking, oh man, there's this virus out to get me, you know. I better whoo, keep, my little, keep my little masks on, stay six feet apart. I can tell you a hundred stories of conflict. <laughs> there's been a loosening up, and you know what I see them doing? Heading off to the pub, heading off to the bar, heading off to watch their sports again. I don't see repentance. I don't. And that tells me one thing. Things are going to have to get way, way worse in this country before we see repentance. It is not there. It's not there amongst God's people. It's not there amongst pagan people. It's not there. Everyone's still looking forward to their life. The pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of ease. Well, a civil war hasn't broken out yet. Everybody's talking about four years from now, well, blah, 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 blah. I guess we're good. Let's get back to the fatness of our table, to the indulgence of meism. I see no drawing close to the Lord. I see no repentance. Things will have to get much worse. That's what I see. And it breaks my heart when I think of it. It brings me to tears and I weep when I think of it. It's brought me to my knees over these days when I think of it. Because I know how great and terrible the judgment of God is. But I also know what a mercy it is and what a goodness it is and how needed it is. Gideon's worshiping. They've been living under 20 years of oppression from the Midianites. They are broken, at least he is. And he's about to lead people towards repentance, towards action on behalf of the Lord. Verse 16 through 22 gives us the battle. It says, Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. Can you imagine being one of those 300 guys? You, are you serious? <laughs> what? This is, We're going to do mimes? I mean, what's going on here, you know? So he divides them, 300 men, into three companies, 100 each. Gives them all their stuff. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and I'll and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. He picked a good time to do this. It's during the changing of the guard. There's always a little bit of confusion during the changing of the guard. People are very task-oriented when they're in the military. So is it my duty now or is it your duty now? Because we're in the middle of doing it. (laughs) Was it actually changed? Then the three companies, the trumpets, blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. The Midianites. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. They started killing each other. And the army fled to Beth, Acacia, towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. By Tabath. Look what happened then. Verse 23 And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. The actions of the 300 rallied the hearts of men. Rallied the hearts of men. Rallied the hearts of men. You know how many people are like that in America? They're waiting to see something happen. I'm big on looking for something to happen because you know what I see in this country? A huge vacuum of leadership, both within the church and the civil government. Lack of no one wants to be a leader. They all rule by consensus, being liked. That's how they that's how they govern. Leaders aren't that way. They tell people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. They're decisive in their actions. They know what needs to be done. They don't just go along to get along. Do you understand that? There are tons of people like these other people who now have joined in the battle. When we see that spark from God in his providence, and I've seen it in scripture like here, I've seen it in reading the history of men. You know it when you see it. And you know God's doing a great work. And you rally to the fight. Amen? But he uses the faithfulness and obedience of those who already have the fight in them, who can't comply, who can't conform, who can't go along to get along. It's just not in you. It's not in us. We can't do it. And all those people one day will rally in God's timing and his provision. And I have no idea what it's going to be like. We may have to go through 80 years of Soviet-style enslavement were that bad. We may have to go through a bloody civil war. I'll take that any day over 80 years of Soviet-style enslavement, any day. But both are great and terrible things. But they are the needed righteous judgment of God upon our nation. So they are routing the enemy And the Lord raises up friends for the 300, and the enemy is defeated. Verses 24 and 25. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb, whose name means raven. And Zeb, whose name means wolf, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. I believe it's um, Psalm 81 talks about um, these two guys, Oreb and Zeb, and how they desired to take the pastures of the Israelites, and instead they became the refuse of the pastures. Don't be forlorn because you see so many Christians indifferent. That's part of God's judgment. He is bringing down the form of American Christianity that we have. It is an evil form of Christianity, a weak, unbiblical form of Christianity. It must be removed. It must be judged. He always purifies his bride. He always reforms her. She is incapable of reforming herself at this point. And God always uses persecution and judgment to reform and purify his bride when she refuses to voluntarily repent. That's a biblical fact. And you leave all that in God's hands. Scripture reveals he's good at that. He's good at persecution and judgment to bring repentance to his people. Draw close to God, brothers and sisters. Do right by him in the earth. Don't be beaten down by the... Overwhelmed because why are there so few of us who want to serve God in the earth that are bothered by the slaughter of the preborn, you know, the juggernaut of homosex, the idiocy of COVID? Don't be. Continue faithful to him and fight. Be true to him. See him work in your life in the lives of the small band of men you're with. Do right by him in the earth. Rouse yourself free from the poison of American Christianity, which only desires to make twofold children of hell, which they then place on their religious hamster wheels, thinking they're doing the will of God while they're simply doing the will of men. Rouse yourself free of that poison. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Lord. We give thanks to you, O God. We worship you. We praise you. We give thanks to you. Father, we ask and pray that you make our foreheads like flint. We ask and pray that you strengthen our hearts, our minds, and our bodies, that we might serve you faithful with the days you've allotted us. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are the sovereign. May we do right by you in the earth, I pray. Hallelujah, God. Lord, I ask and pray that you help each man here to be a priest to his home, that he opens your word to his wife and to his children, that they talk about the things of you. Help each woman, oh God, to be an anchor in the home, a helpmate to her husband, a nurturer of the children. Help each child to have a heart hungry for you. Help each young man to use his strength to the glory of your name. Each old man uses wisdom to the glory of your name. May we do right by our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, Father. May we impart you to them. May we gather as families and cry out to you in prayer, seeking your face, desirous of you, We thank you, O God, for your goodness to us. Lord, we just ask and pray that you be glorified in our lives and in our homes. We ask and pray, O God, that we would confront the idols of our day. That we would resist the tyrants of our day, O God. That we would oppose the evil ideologies of our day. That we would Fight as Christian men and women and do right by you in the earth. We thank you that we live at this time. We thank you for that, God. Praise your holy name. And we commit it all into your hands, Father. Be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise his name.